Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell. Today I'm bringing to you Professor Jose Gonzalez Alonso from Brunel University in London. He's done a massive amount of work on exercise in the heat, dehydration, fluid ingestion, and human circulation during exercise. Um, he has a really interesting background, and I've actually known him and his work for over 30 years when I was doing exercise on the effect of fluid ingestion on heart rate and body temperature, etc. So we had a great chat about that. So he started off, um, he's from Spain, and then he did his master's and PhD with Eddie Coyle in Texas, who I've already had on the podcast, big name in exercise, metabolism, etc. And then he moved to Copenhagen, where he he researched uh, with real royalty over there. So Bank Saltine, a massive, massive name in um, exercise physiology and metabolism for 50 years or so, who has unfortunately passed away now. And also with um, Bodo Nelson. It's a very interesting background. I think you'll really enjoy this one. So stick around. Hi, Jose. Welcome to Inside Exercise. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, Glenn. Thank you for having me. No, no. It's, I'm excited to chat. So we've i don't actually know if we actually met at a conference or not but we kind of go back a long way in terms of we're both looking at fluid ingestion and carbohydrate ingestion and things way back in the 90s and you've continued on with that and i sort of moved off and looked at other things so it's fun to have you know a chat about all this stuff yeah it is yeah. um yeah definitely i i started my master and phd in eddie Cole's laboratory at the university of texas in austin mm -hmm. i remember that uh the, the, there were similarities between the work that you were doing in australia and also hargrave uh, mark hargrave um, yes mark Agrario, all those groups that were working in similar areas yes so what do you tell us it's it's quite nice sometimes to chat about how did you actually end up were you like a a sports person who took an interest in exercise or did you did you do exercise and then eddie said let's look at you know let's look at exercise or mm -hmm. you know what happened i'm i'm originally from spain from from the canary islands uh, uh close to to africa uh an island called tenerife but i did my undergraduate degree in physical education in barcelona uh okay and the main reason is because that allows me to to train there i was an endurance uh runner there I was training with a good group. I was very interested in in the different theories of how to improve human performance. Many of your guests that you have, um, mm. and I was very interested in the theory of uh, training. Uh, and then by the end of the the five year degree, the, I was invited to 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 evaluate uh, some data from. It was called Eurofit. There was a battery of tests to test uh, the fitness of uh, children. So I put together okay. a poster. I have to analyze some data. So, so I got me interested in. Sorry, in was, that, was that part of your? Is that part of your undergraduate? You had a five-year undergraduate degree, was it? Yeah, but it was wow. in Spain at that time. We have a degree that that it was. Uh, it's called licenciado. There was uh, it, it included like a master, but. But uh, so so that's what, how it was organized at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, we are talking about from eight, 1982 to 1987. So, but but from there, then I was interested, and um, I was also training with other uh, people. And one of my friends have gone to Austin, Texas, to because he was interested in doing a master there. But then he decided not to go. But then he gave me all the information. 
uh, and then I follow his step. I went to to study English there for a year and do all the yep. uh, examinations, and then eventually I started the master there. Uh, I, I, it fitted nicely because I was interested in running. I was running, and and, and then in that program, I was a, I was standing program at that time. Uh, mm -hmm. Like Jack Wilmot was there, Eddie Cole, uh, John Ivy, a number of other uh, mm -hmm. excellent teachers and researchers. So it was the right environment um, for me. So, so th that, that's where I really started. Um, and then in the master uh, thesis, so uh, Professor Eddie Coyle, Dr. Mm -hmm. Coyle, we call him. And that time he, he mentored me uh, and actually then got the opportunity to, to pursue a PhD. My, my master was more in rehydration uh, after exercise, but there was a component of exercise in mechanical dehydration and that linked nicely to them experiments on prolonged exercise and dehydration and effects of environmental conditions and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you you had some some, some great uh, advisors there. Yeah, so Eddie Coyle's already been on the podcast as we chatted about before you came on. He's a great guy, and uh, you know Jack Wilmore and and John Ivy's there as well. So in Austin, Texas, University of Texas, mm -hmm. and then you moved on to to Copenhagen. So how did that come about? How did you actually? Well, um... it was more uh, during during the master and the PhD. We were studying. Uh, all different papers and basic paper from the Scandinavian uh, groups. Uh, and then when we characterize the, the cardiovascular responses and identifying the cardio output and decrease, confirming previous data of uh, Michael Saka, he, he did uh, mm -hmm. experiments during prolonged exercise. And at the same time, your group were doing experiments in that line as well. Uh, then the next step, because at that point there was a controversy, uh, like Professor Lorraine Rahl had put forward a hypothesis that when you superimpose uh, heat stress, uh, heavy exercise, you should have uh, a reduction in muscle blood flow uh, mm -hmm. because there's a competition between the skin, this concept, this hypothesis that a competition between muscle and the skin, and then the skin will win. At that time, um, Body Nelson, together with uh, Ben Saltim, uh, had done different experiments with the knee extensor, just heating. And was a, a postdoc at that time from Canada, Sabah. Uh, uh, and, and she published a number of papers where they were not able to actually find that blood flow was reduced. Uh, so I, I thought that maybe with the intervention of dehydration, where we found that cardio output could be uh, reduced by four liters per minute uh, or 20% compared to the control you uh, had mm -hmm. condition, that would be a paradigm that was interesting to characterize that. And in Copenhagen, they have the thermal dilution technique that allows you to measure muscle blood flow. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an invasive technique, but it's the one that works uh, uh, to yes. be able to measure blood flow during exercise and at the same time take um, blood samples to characterize arterial venous difference for a number. All right. Of, so there's there's, there's more royalty there. So so Bank Saltine, unfortunately, the part, you know the late Bank Saltine, massive mm -hmm. name. So if people don't know, because this is part of the problem, you 
you find um, students don't always know these names, you know, once people pass away. So you need to know some big names, so Bank Saltine, Phil Golnick, um, uh, all sorts of, you said Loring Rao, Raul, Raul, R-O-W-E-L-L. Okay, so why don't we just step back a little bit? So there's a fair bit there, you talk about controversies with muscle blood flow and things. Why don't we just make sure everyone's on the same page here? So if you if you start exercise, yeah, and let's just assume, you know, it's it's mild. So we, if we go through sort of, you know, trying to keep a bit of structure. So if you do prolonged exercise in mild conditions and you're not drinking fluids, for example, you know, what happens to your heart rate, your stroke volume, your cardiac output, your muscle mm -hmm. blood flow, et cetera. And then we might move into, okay, so what if it's hot? And then what if mm -hmm. you drink fluids and what if you have fluids and carbohydrate and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so can we just start off? Cause I know you guys have done amazing work way back there with Eddie Coyle. And then you've obviously done a lot more um, on just, you know, what's happening during prolonged exercise in mild temperatures. Yeah, it is. Uh, yes. Ambient temperature have an, an important impact on the effects of, of dehydration from yeah. On one hand, actually, during mild environmental conditions, one doesn't sweat as much. But if the intensity uh, mimics what, what happens in outdoor conditions where you run a marathon in, in 12, uh, 13 degrees centigrade, uh, where actually the athletes perform at their best, they still become somewhat dehydrated. And, and all depends on the duration. If the duration is three hours, you can still become dehydrated by three to 4%. Uh, in, in those environments, you still have, uh, and that's, I relate to, to, to experiments in well-controlled conditions, like a, a, a paper in 1991 by Hamilton, uh, in Eddie laboratory that characterized that, those responses. Even in a thermonutric environment, you still have rate increases and there's a reduction in cardio output. But that extent of this cardiovascular strain is smaller than if the same person is exercising in a hot environment. The responses mm -hmm. are magnified. So, so, so if you go then to even a cold environment, that's something that, that also we did as part of my PhD thesis is you have, you're, dehydrated by 4% and you exercise in a very cold environment, uh, zero degrees or five degrees, you still have some increase in heart rate, but the reduction in cardio output is completely prevented. And even the rise of core temperature can be prevented in a very cold environment. So, so, so the cooler environments ameliorate the effects of, of dehydration can be in a very cool, or, or almost the, the, the effects are minimal. Yes. Okay. So if you're exercising, you're saying naturally, if, if it's cool, you're not going to have to sweat as much. So then you won't lose as much fluid. Do you want to just talk about where's that fluid actually coming from? You know, you've got the plasma volume, you've got the, the you know, the overall blood volume, you've got the, the fluid, you know, elsewhere. Why don't you just talk about, I want to get this sort of concept that you're exercising, your heart rate goes up and then it's sort of plateaus out and then it's going to mm -hmm. sort of drift up so cardiovascular drift depending on what happens to your sweat rates your sodium levels you know all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff can we just talk about that a little bit yeah it, it when, when one is losing like three three kilograms or, or three liters of fluid from from the body uh there that that fluid is coming from the intravascular space 
so for mainly plasma poly, the interstitial space and intracellular space. The intracellular space is the bigger, so the in absolute term contributes uh, more to those three liters, let's say, if it's one and a half or so, uh, it comes from intracellular. Particularly the skin and a skeletal muscle, they, they, they tend to contribute more to that loss in mother. And, and if you you think about the streams, the condition where somebody dehydrates, you can see that the skin can wrinkle because mm. it's highly dehydrated. Okay. Mm. So, so, but but in regards to the impact of these fluid losses in, in cardiovascular uh, function, uh, by by using plasma volume restoration, plasma volume expansion, we have an exercise in a cold environment, we have been able to identify what is the effect of intracellular interstitial versus vascular. Um, as I mentioned before, in a cold environment, you can still be dehydrated by 4%. So you, mm. you still have three kilos uh, or three liters uh, less body water, mm. but the effects are very minimal. And if you restore blood volume, you completely restore cardiovascular function to control levels, despite you still have three liters less of total body water. Uh, okay, so that's when you're infusing, is that, sorry, is that when you're infusing dextran or something, you're infusing yes, something yeah. to, to, to keep the water in the blood? Yes, the so, so blood. if you normally lose about 300 milliliters of plasma from your five liters of blood that the average person has, then you, you lose, and part of that, 55% uh, or so, it is plasma. So, so let's say that you have three, three, three liters of plasma, you lose about 300 milliliters of that. If you replace that with the plasma mm -hmm. volume expansion in a heat, and this is what uh, Scott Montaigne and Eddie Cole did, in the heat, you ameliorate, at least, at least you um, ameliorate the effects on stroke volume, half of that decrease in stroke volume is reduced and it's to some extent that cardio output is restored to normal right. level. Yeah, so I mean, so just again, just to summarize, so, so when you're exercising prolonged, you're sweating, you're losing your plasma volume, therefore you're losing some blood volume. To maintain your cardiac output, you've got to have, you know, your stroke volume drops a little bit. So you've got to have a higher heart rate to maintain your cardiac output. And you're saying that it's been shown if you prevent that loss in blood volume, you will totally prevent that um, that cardiovascular drift. You won't have to have a higher heart rate to maintain the cardiac output. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, but, but there's a caveat to, to that. And I, I used to think in that way, the, the, the evidence that have changed my mind in regards to the role of heart rate it is the heart rate pacing experiments. When you pace the heart and increase heart rate, you still have the same cardio output. Uh, and that links mm -hmm. nicely what is, is, is the effect of the heart versus the periphery in the control of circulation. So, uh, so, okay. so yes, normally with the cardiovascular drift, you have an increase in heart rate and we say that that's compensate, but that's only happens, that compensation happens is you have, proportional change in venous return coming back. Uh, mm -hmm. Independently, an increase in heart rate doesn't change uh, cardio output. And either a lower rest, stroke volume. No? Yeah, it's okay. in proportion. And even during maximal exercise, our rest. Or, uh, and so so th this is show how integrative physiology, how important it is 
because you gain an insight that isolated responses that we characterize and time when we remove cells or so. Then when you put them in vivo, when you have all the factors, uh, they might not work in the same way. Uh, and, and the heart rate, uh, it, it, it is uh, it's one of the responses that uh, the pacing experiment have clarified about the impact and how they are interacting interact with what happening in the periphery. Uh, okay. And clarify right. that, that, that so, phenomenon. So, okay. So maybe my understanding is a bit old fashioned or something. So, so during exercise, uh, when your heart rate drifts, so the cardiovascular drift, what do we know about the reason for that? Because I, you know, I just thought it was like I said, you know, reduction in plasma volume and and uh, therefore less less venous returns so or less, um, you know, stroke volume. So therefore, you have to increase mm -hmm. your heart rate. Maybe that's a part of it. But but also, isn't it like this? The increase in sodium, if you're not drinking enough, can stimulate, can affect that. And I don't know, the higher adrenaline, you know, is going to put your heart rate up. And now, what is your understanding? Why why does why does why do you get cardiovascular drift? I guess I'm saying. What's the latest thinking on that? Yeah, it, uh, I think it, it, in, in many the approach that we have taken to investigate that paradigm it is to always have a control uh, condition where responses are are maintained. So, so in, uh, the effect of exercise is controlled for, and so from that control condition where heart rate is maintained, when stroke volume is maintained, then we superimpose uh, dehydration and in that, in that conditions where cardioputy de decreases. I initially, we were just focusing on cardioputy. That's what we could measure. We have this uh, rebreathing technique we could measure. More recently, we have used like ultrasound and, uh, and you are able to look at the feeling and emptying of the heart also. Uh, contractility of the heart, and you actually with dehydration during prolonged exercise, if anything, the contractility of the heart, so how the heart is working, if anything is working better, it increases. So, okay. so what uh, with a, a number of measurements that uh, that we have made, actually have changed our mind that in the way we see that we we believe now that actually the venous return mm -hmm. plays a major role and yes the, the dehydration why stroke volume is reduced is because the feeling of the heart and the diastolic volume is reduced compared uh, uh, to the control conditions but but and systolic or, or, or how much blood remains in the heart is actually smaller. So that thing says that the heart itself is working harder. So it's not because the heart itself is failing. It is a periphery, changes in periphery, particular blood flow, actually blood flow in the periphery. We have some in the forearm, in the brain, blood flow to the brain reduces, blood flow to the muscle reduces. So that level of reduction in flow, uh, impact venous flow mm. and impact the feeling of the heart okay that's where uh we are at okay the moment. and, and you you mentioned like three percent four percent the i'm interested in david costal who i did my master's with way back and another another one if people haven't looked him up they need to look him up he used to always say two percent reduction if you had a two percent reduction in your body weight that would then reduce your performance. Is that you weren't talking about body weight earlier? So I'm probably you. Yeah, you said three. Yeah. Oh, you were okay. 
is that still the thinking do you know or is that does it depend on uh, the event or it, it is there have been i mean in this area there have been many other groups that have contributed much more than we mm. have okay. in regards to the effect of of performance at this low level one sure. to two percent and the idea is that at that range of one to one and a half percent it is very difficult to actually demonstrate that there is a clear substantial effect on performance is when you go above two percent when there is a more consistent impairment uh, it makes sense because there's some variability of just repeating a performance bout so you always have to have an effect yeah. <laughs> that's beyond that mm -hmm. and and the other one i guess is is if you're talking about how much dehydration do you have to have to to have effect performance and keeping in mind you said you haven't done that much with that uh what about the you know events that you know if you're doing a running race that takes i don't know 30 minutes 40 minutes something like that do you think you need to drink fluid during the event or no, it is, it is like, it's very interesting. Still in the World Championship, you see that during the 5,000 meters and these elite athletes that can run some, many of them below 13 minutes. Mm. And if you calculate the sweat rate over 13 minutes, it, it is more. And then they still have uh, tables with water so, so they can go and rehydrate during that time. I think it's counterproductive in that short period of time. And even in the 10,000 meters at that speed that you go, it is very difficult to, to drink. And if you count, again, even in 27 or 28 uh, minutes that, that you run, well, more than closer to 27 <laughs> in the World Championship for the 10,000, it is that you don't lose that substantial amount of fluid. So many of them, they drink before, and you see them with the bottles before, and that I think is fine. And then did you drink after? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I used to do the, there's a race in, in Sydney, the city to surf. It's a 14 kilometer race. So I guess that's about eight miles or eight and a half miles, I think it is. And um, they used to always, uh, had, you know, every kilometer or something, there'd be these drinks, but which some people take, you know, half the day to finish it. Mm -hmm. And it's often hot. But I remember the, the woman who won that, Lisa Martin, who became Lisa Ondieki, she actually got the silver medal in the Olympics mm -hmm. and gold in the Commonwealth Games Marathon. I remember she ran the whole thing and she ran 45, 50, I think. And she didn't drink at all. And I was like, wow, what? I, and, and then I realized, you know, I guess part of it's just having it, having it in your mouth, maybe. You know, I, th I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's, but you would probably say, and, and she obviously did fine. You don't need to, right? Over something that takes, I don't know, 45 minutes. An hour, maybe an hour is getting about borderline off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is uh, any event be, below an hour, it is it's more difficult to show an, an impact. It's different. It's different. You start hypohydrated. That, yes. that, that's a different thing. But mm -hmm. uh, if you are fully hydrated, that's like all elite athletes uh, do, and they have a breakfast or so. They, they, they have optimized their pre-performance uh, hydration, energy status. So, so they, they, in those conditions, and they even drink something right before, they should be fine. That's a, that's a nice little segue there when you said below an hour, because the paper by below that you were on, yeah, below mm -hmm. yourself, Eddie Coyle, mm -hmm. looked at an hour 
of exercise. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? So that he had the four conditions. That was mm -hmm. quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it is, you know, that was a high intensity, 80%. That mimics the conditions, for example, the time trial in cycling that is about an hour. And in, those, in that study, actually, uh, the combination of, of carbohydrate uh, and fluid improved performance. The, the, the times that they, uh, they are not as the, the significant effect, and there's a percentage uh, clear improvement in performance. But compared to other conditions where we do, there are minutes of different that was smaller. But mm -hmm. That's uh, in that particular experiment, 80% beta to max, uh, in high intensity exercise for an hour, that we are, we are able to identify effects. So, so we, we, we are, before we were talking about 45 minutes. So, so the concept that a shorter event, I think it's holes, but then whether just, then, then one has to be specific about whether that one hour in this particular study, there was an effect. Uh, yeah, I have to so say one hour. We cons consider that those evidence. Definitely, one hour is, is very much the, the cutting point because I did a study of an hour and there's no effect, but you guys got a nice effect there. But that was nice that you did. You had um, you had no fluid or carbohydrate, and then you had fluid only. Sorry, water only. Mm -hmm. Well, it was probably artificially sweetened, but you had fluid with no carbohydrate. Then you had carbohydrate, but just very small amount so not yep. much fluid mm -hmm. and then you had both and uh yeah that was a nice so why don't you just tell us um so what happens then therefore if you are doing prolonged exercise and you want to prevent your dehydration and you ingest fluid why don't you tell us you know what what effects that's happening on cardiovascular drift etc um mm. uh, yeah yes it is uh, actually there's some insight that we have gained also from the experiments. In all the, the, the experiments we have done, we always try to match the carbohydrate intake by, by adjusting the fluids uh, that people drink. So during the fluid, uh, full fluid replacement, uh, you, you get the same carbohydrate compared to also uh, the condition of dehydration where you ingest in a, a highly concentrated solution mm. that amount of carbohydrate but what is important that amount of carbohydrate alone doesn't prevent the effects of dehydration so so it's not the carbohydrate itself so it's, it is the fluid plays a, a major a major role yes so if again if you just tell us how that how is that fluid actually um improving your cardiovascular function and 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 your performance i guess so what's it what's it, it actually doing in 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 this athletes that are familiarized with drinking lar large volumes of, of fluid you, you need to drink about 1.8 to, to uh, almost two liters of fluid per hour to able to maintain hydration it, we we have noticed that in, in this these people they don't urinate they don't need to urinate during with these carbohydrate electrolyte solutions so they're able to absorb very quickly and we also measure it in body weight we measure in blood hematocrit hemoglobin and so you can measure uh, plasma volume and blood volume they're able to maintain the plasma volume uh, better 
compared to the dehydration condition. So there, there's a vascular effect there that have an impact. And there's a different studies where you just remove plasma and they have a circulatory effect. So, it's, so there's a clear mechanistic effect of their why drinking have an effect. So, so the, the vascular is affected, but you are rehydrating also the cells, uh, mm -hmm. muscle, the, the skin. And so the, the, that's also linked to different metabolic uh, uh, sympathoadrenergic activity mm -hmm. that, that is affected. So, so there is the, there's interaction of factors, but definitely drinking uh, during prolonged exercise in the heat, that's actually a very important point. You train people that are partially heat acclimatized are able to maintain this dynamic homeostasis. Yeah. So, so it, it, there was this concept that people say, oh, you exercise in a hot environment, and this is really, but nobody, these very trained people in those experimental conditions are able to maintain homeostasis the same as they will do in a cold environment. Yes. So that's, that's not, so you've shown that and we did it as well, but we didn't have this nice measurements. We didn't have the cardiac output and things, but basically it seemed like if you drink fluid or you don't drink fluid, the first hour or so, the heart rate um, goes up the same. And then after the first hour, so again, it's this sort of hour cutoff, then it makes a difference. If you're not drinking fluid, your heart rate continues to drift up. Mm -hmm. If you are drinking fluid equal to your fluid losses, which as you say is quite a lot, mm -hmm. um, you're able to, as you said, maintain your homeostasis. You basically, your heart rate doesn't drift anymore. Your cardiac mm -hmm. output stays constant. So it's quite incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. It is. A, I mean, there, there's a classic figure from Costill also showing that with the core temperature, with dehydration, dehydration mm. separate is over time and it particularly they become more evident after one hour of exercise they, they say continuous there's a continue you know the difference between the <laughs> the statistical significance and the physiological trends it's <laughs> ah. a continuous there guess what somehow we've managed to go half an hour or something i haven't talked about body temperature <laughs> i knew there was something okay. i wasn't so that's the thing as well that that you, when you say your homeostasis so after the first hour if you're drinking equal to your fluid losses your body temperature you know sort of goes mm -hmm. up in the first hour whether you drink or not pretty much and then it stays constant as well so as you say you're able to maintain mm -hmm. your homeostasis in terms of cardiac function and body temperature is that fair to say yeah it is a, there's a beautiful study just isolated heart Patterson and Stanley, uh, Stanley in 1912 where they have isolated heart and they just change the temperature of the blood. And you can see in their preparation, heart rate increases with increases in temperature of the blood. Cardio output is maintained in under yeah. those conditions, but in heart rate. So, so there, there can be an effect of just temperature itself. itself. And as you said, you mentioned the, the, uh, the sympathetic nervous system. So the other thing is, you know, people know about adrenaline, of course. So adrenaline goes up more during exercise when you're not drinking fluid. Yep. It goes up more mm -hmm. when it's hot, and that will then stimulate yep. muscle glycogen breakdown and things. So if you can, yes. if you can drink fluid and keep your um, homeostasis, you know, you keep your adrenaline down, you actually spare muscle glycogen. I, there's a couple of papers that I think some found it did, some found it didn't, um, but it definitely. Do you know the latest on that? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. The first paper with the effects of dehydration and glycogen utilization was uh, Mark Hargrave in 1996 yeah. and John Applied Physiology, who was a 
uh, his group were the first to to characterize that glycogen utilization was greater and when dehydrated and core temperature was elevated and muscle temperature was elevated compared uh, to 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 the rehydrated condition. Uh, we have shown uh, some that Lawrence Spritz laboratory has some mm -hmm. the same with dehydration, even they have biopsies in one hour and then at the end of exercise. So, so it seems that that's, there's some consistency there. Uh, in that condition, you have the higher temperature, you have the higher uh, adrenaline, uh, you have the higher glucagon, you, you mm. have a number of factors, the cortisol, so, so the number of factors that can affect metabolism. And, and Mark Hagrid have with Mark Febrile, Yes. Uh, yes, the thesis, they tried to elucidate what was the effect of adrenaline, what was the effect of temperature, and that was right. very, very nice work. Uh, yes, so as you said, Mark, Mark Fabrio, because then, because when you've got the high adrenaline and the higher temperature, you've got to say, oh, which, what's, you know, what's, is it both? Or is it? So right. I remember Mark mm -hmm. Fabrio did the thing. I remember seeing that he had the, the cuff around one quad where he mm -hmm. made it cold water, and then he had a cuff around the other quad where he mm -hmm. made it hot water. And I think he showed higher muscle glycogen during the same exercise mm -hmm. use mm -hmm. with the hot leg so yeah, yeah. it was it was fun days all that stuff mm -hmm. okay so i was thinking about some of these twitter questions here that we've got that came through so thanks people for sending those through i know you're not a twitter there's definitely pros and cons of being on twitter so i, I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to go on but mm. i sent these through earlier so alan mccubbin I uh, would love to hear his thoughts on one, the independent roles of total body water, plasma volume, and osmolality on heart mm. rate, body temperature, and performance. So maybe we've talked about the water, we've talked about plasma volume. Maybe just explain a little bit what we're talking about there of osmolality, just to bring people up to speed yeah. that maybe don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Os osmolality is the index of how many. Uh, particles one has in the blood, and that becomes higher when uh, plasma plasma fluid or plasma volume is reduced. So osmolality is increased with dehydration, and there's osmoreceptors, particularly in the brain, and that the, in the hypothalamus that link to control of of temperature. Um, we have discussed a little bit about the effects of before of what happened dehydration in a very cold environment uh, and that you are able to do in some maximal exercise to completely reverse the effects of dehydration by having restored blood volume and you still mm -hmm. are dehydrated. But one point that I can make, it comes from maximal exercise where there was the thesis of uh, Lars Nivo in, in Copenhagen that, uh, I supervise it, it, uh, together with uh, with Bode Nelson um, that also in the dehydration condition when during maximal exercise, VO2 max it was significantly markedly depressed uh, compared to the control condition. So even the condition where we uh, prevented an increase in core temperature. We put uh, uh, circulated cold water through a mm -hmm. suit, and so kept the skin cold. The core temperature was the same as the control. So under this condition, then some level of performance was 
restored, but still VO2 max was reduced compared to the control condition. And that is associated with the lower uh, blood volume, plasma volume. So, so there's condition if you are exercising, you know, the winter uh, Olympics in cross country skiing, being dehydrated under those conditions is not very good <laughs> if you have to go very high intensity either. So you have to be as hydrated as possible because VO2 max, so mm. maximum aerobic capacity can be, can be impaired under those conditions. Despite during some maximal exercise, it's very difficult to, to see an impact on metabolism. Okay, so just to make sure people are clear. So it's generally accepted that VO2 max is determined by your maximum cardiac output. So you're saying there that if you've got a reduced plasma volume, you have a reduced blood volume. And therefore, is that is that what you're saying? You have a less of a maximum yeah. stroke volume and maximum cardiac output, is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. The cool. thing that have become uh, <laughs> everything over time, right? I probably this in every generation of scientists is always like that. So you, you bring in new elements. More recently, there have been a, a experiments in looking at blood flow regulation when you change oxygenation of the blood. And you, you can see that uh, if you are anemic, then you still can maintain during some maximum conditions uh, oxygen delivery by increasing flow in proportion to the reaction in content and the opposite with polycythemia, with carbon monoxide. Mm -hmm. so, 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 what I'm trying to say it is that before we have a very cardiocentric view of, of the uh, circulatory responses, and now we are trying to understand that actually what happened in the periphery is more determining what uh, the heart is doing, more the other way around. And that becomes more clear when you measure blood flow in different territories in the body during exercise. If cardio output were the determinant of flow, you would think that when cardio output increases, like during incremental exercise, it goes from five liters mm -hmm. per minute at rest to 25 in, in trained people or 30 in highly elite athletes or more. But blood flow to the brain increases and then decreases. Mm -hmm. For example, blood flow to the guts and anything also uh, decreases. Decrease. So that's kind of be then with cardio output just solely determine the peripheral flow, then you mm -hmm. should have an increase in flow in those territories as well. So, so uh, also when, when, when you do exercise with one uh, leg only, blood mm -hmm. flow increases in that leg, but it doesn't increase in the other leg yeah. unless you start moving it. So, yeah. so that tells you that when you exercise with one leg and you blood flow to the leg goes up to five, six liters, cardio output increases in proportion. So you have now 12 liters cardio output, but blood flow in my arm doesn't necessarily increase. Yeah. So that's, that, 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 that's the other uh, way of looking at uh, the mechanism by which these adjustments that occurs uh, during exercise and, and this cardiovascular strain uh, of course, and underlying mechanisms. Okay, so you, I mean, you get local dilators, yeah. So you're getting the yes. in the in the contracting muscle, yes. Mm -hmm. You don't have any other other areas. I guess I'm slightly, I sli you slightly lost me there. Sorry, well, I lost myself. Uh, what yeah, was your well, point? well so, it is yeah. with the, with the link with, with the dehydration paradigm where um, blood flow to the skeleton muscle reduces, mm -hmm. but 
but you are measuring blood flow in an inactive, you're doing semi-recumbent cycling. Yes. In inactive forearm, blood flow goes down. Yes. If you look at blood flow of the brain, blood flow to the brain also decreases. So when you, you're having this decrease in cardio output, there's also decreases in flow in the periphery. It kind of makes sense. But what come what what comes first? <laughs> it's the ah, reducing okay. cardio output or, or the reducing in peripheral flow. And the point I'm trying to make mm -hmm. is that nowadays we try to see more that the importance of what happened in the periphery uh, determining more what cardio output than the other way around. Uh, basically, cardio output accommodates the changes in the peripheral flow. Yeah, so that especially the, rather than determine determine the flow in itself, unless so, in, in normal healthy people. So it's kind of like what you were saying earlier that that the main determinant of cardiac output and stroke volume is your venous return. So how much blood is coming back from the periphery? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. And this is this is an idea. I mean, Guyton already with his experiments in the dark, um, he already indicated that and say that. Yeah. That uh, when when you pace the heart in in these preparations, they don't change cardio output. So it is it is uh, and that is a beautiful intervention because you are just affecting the rate of the polarization in the heart. So it, it, it is the heart rate. Let's say you you are only changing heart rate. It's not the like pharmacological interventions. You you are affecting many different okay. other issues. Okay. Right, another one from Twitter, and it's something we haven't overly talked about is the humidity so uh maya m-a-i-a shouldn't be that hard what's the main factor if there is a main one for exercise performance impairment in hot and humid conditions so just talking about you know the, the effect that having dry air versus humid air has mm. obviously when it's hot it's going to be more important um yeah it, it, it's uh the environmental conditions, as we said initially, plays a, a major role uh, because it modifies the external stimuli that affects the, the level of stress on the body. And so yeah, by tweaking humidity, tweaking the, 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 the temperature, the ambient temperature, you, you affect the rate of hypothermia. What, what is very important is to think that if you are doing walking in a hot environment, you don't necessarily immediately impact core temperature. At low intensities and at rest, in a hot environment, you can still have the same core temperature. And this Marius Nielsen in 1938 already demonstrated that there's uh, core temperature independent of the environment from 35 degrees to 35 when you are doing low intensity exercise. And then there are a lot of him work later on and my Saka have reviewed that uh, nicely a number of times that that thermonuclear zone it becomes smaller with the intensity of exercise going up but uh, what I'm trying to say here is yes that I think it's for the understanding of the responses of, uh, of the athletes to perform it's better to think about hypothermia or dehydration it's the internal physiological stray, and that can be induced by different environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. We know for sure that your level of core temperature is very high. 
and it's very reproducible. You get to around 40, 40, 40, 40 and a half. It's, it's impossible for people to continue uh, exercise. They basically fatigue. So, so yes, there's an upper limit of, yes. uh, of, of temperatures that, that one can reach. And that can be induced by different environment and different level of dehydration. So, so this is have to be considered in, in establishing the impact. One, one last point that maybe I extend it more than uh, to try to, to simplify or address that more directly that question. I don't believe that there's a single factor that uh, can, is responsible for uh, fatigue. And it, it, it all depends on the paradigm one uses. We use the FIG principle. Uh, we use the uh, Ohm's law to understand. And th those are uh, equations. There are three component equations. Uh, and within each of the components, there's many different factors that affect. Mm. So yes, saying that it is hypothermia. Uh, yes, it's very reproducible that when you get to this high temperature, you stop. By saying it is just temperature in one side of the body, uh, in my view, is too simplistic. You have to think about the multiple effects that are occurring. When you have the high temperature, you have also reduced cardio output. You have peripheral flow reduced. Okay. There's some alteration in substrate utilization. Ventilation is higher. <laughs> so there's so how, how you cannot really identify that it's only a single factor. Okay, so just just I'll get back to that in a moment. The actual fatigue, um, but maybe just I wanted to get out that that concept of the humidity part. So you know, people we always have the Australian Open here in the middle of summer, and people say, "Oh, that that person's sweating so much today. They weren't sweating as much yesterday." And you say, "Well, yes, today is much more humid, so you know it's harder to evaporate." I just want to get that that mm -hmm. point out. You know, if it, if it's humid, it, you can't evaporate as much, so you're you'll have the, you know, the water dripping off you more. I wanted to get mm -hmm. that out, that out. But the thing you said about, yeah, so what's causing the performance, uh, you know, why are they fatiguing or not performing as well in the heat? Do you want to just talk a bit about that? Because we had Sam, uh, Samuel Makora on last week, you know, and we're saying, you know, what determines fatigue? Is it sort of, you know, is it central, you know, the central hypothesis, et cetera, or not? And I know before we started, we chatted a little bit mm -hmm. about that. Did you want to just say a little bit about that? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, th th this is definitely an area of, of interest. And in the last 20 years, I think that there have been a lot of new data uh, into measuring blood flow and metabolism across the brain to see whether actually metabolism of the brain, it is impaired and we are center drive. I remember being part of an experiment with Bodhi Nelson's lab where we measure EEG e, e, activity also to try to elucidate whether central drive is reduced. I have become more aware uh, in the, of the data that there is quite a lot in, in the literature measuring EMG activity that is the muscle electrical activity during fatiguing exercise, including hypothermia and hypoxia. And what is interesting during contact exercise, before fatigue, you have this exponential increase in EMG activity, knowing that you know, the, mass, the brain is responsible for firing 
mm. for, for activating skeletal muscle, then the only way that can, one can interpret that is that central drive, anything, it is increasing. So uh, it might be that the brain participates in this fatigue phenomenon, but not necessarily by reducing the, the central drive. Uh, we, we were sort of put together some ideas from the literature and the data that we have. And we, we have kind of gone back to the classical concept of Hill, where they about limitations in skeletal muscle metabolism. And, and actually, I, I kind of uh, support the data that we have support that idea. Uh, an unknown area in, in physiology, of exercise physiology, is how much muscle is actually active. But based on the ENG activity, if anything, muscle activity, the muscle mass engaged to maintain the same power is going up. We measure oxygen consumption that is stable or goes down. Then you know that anaerobic energy provision have low capacity, kind of overcome or over uh, compensate for this reduction in um, oxidative phosphorylation in, in the in the pathways that generate energy aerobically, cannot compensate very, very long. So, so when you consider the muscle mass is going up and you uh, calculate uh, energy or ATP per unit of muscle, you probably, I, I, it makes to me that it is, that is going down. When you're fatiguing, there's a reduction in total energy turnover per unit of muscle engaged. So that's, that's, that could be one major factor. And that is because in the brain and in the heart, is, is anything is going the other way. Uh, oxygen consumption is going up in those territory. It makes sense because they are vital organs. Uh, so so they, uh, even during when we are doing uh, maximal exercise, we are working to the, closer to the capacity of the muscle, but not the capacity of the heart or the capacity of the brain. Okay, uh, so, so with the so exercise and the heat, and when you're getting near fatigue, you're saying you have an increase in EMG, if anything, which is the more messages being sent from the brain to the muscle. Mm -hmm. But what are you saying is happening? If anything, you're producing less ATP per unit muscle. Is that what you said? Yeah, it is. If that can indicate, if you say that you have seven kilos of muscle in a leg mm -hmm. active, when ENG activity goes up, might indicate that rather than seven, there might be uh, seven and a half yes. uh, kilos. Mm -hmm. But oxygen consumption, what we can measure in the leg, if anything goes down. down. So, so, so when you say ATP, total ATP per unit of muscle, per kilo of muscle active, if anything could be going down, uh rather and what do you think's going on there so what do you think's happening it's it's not i know some people are going to be thinking oh it's because you're becoming you're using more anaerobic metabolism but that's not the case because your lactate doesn't really go up towards fatigue. yeah well yeah it, it, it is it, it, in the, in, it does it does it does it does in the heat near fatigue yeah 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 okay. yeah okay. It's, 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 you measure muscle lactate uh in the experiments we have done, we measure also intracellular metabolites at the time of fatigue, and then we have a control condition. Uh, 
uh, at the same isotype, and you can see differences in muscle lactate, creatine, utilization, and okay. ATP. And That's muscle. interesting because when you mentioned Mark Hargraves, he was my PhD supervisor. When we do exercise to exhaustion in mild conditions, you know, fatigue, go, to, go as long as you can. If we do a biopsy, we don't really see much changing um, at the point of fatigue. You can, you, so we sort of think, oh, it's not, it's something muscle metab metabolic has happened. But you're saying if it's in the heat, yeah, you, you see mm -hmm. stuff happens at, at the point of fatigue versus like 10 minutes before or something. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it is, it is, uh, it is easier to see uh, the differences during maximal exercise, highly intensity exercise compared to some maximal exercise. And ah. also it's easier to see with dehydration hypothermia uh, mm -hmm. during some maximal exercise compared to control conditions. Hey, one, one thing we, we discussed before we came on air was you were saying we should talk about what we get in the lab with the participants we use or you use uh, versus like elite athletes. You were saying we should probably talk about that a little bit. What, what did you have in mind there? Yeah, it, it is. We, we, we should acknowledge that uh, the participants that we normally test, even uh, test people that are highly trained, but not, not necessarily the elite ones. And the effects that, for example, heat acclimatization or also the effects of dehydration in those elite athletes might be smaller than we characterize in very good athletes. So this, this is something that should be definitely investigated in the future. So for, uh, to, to, to be more specific about the recommendation we make to, uh, to elite athletes. I guess the other thing I was just thinking was, um, you touched on earlier with David Costell's uh, stuff and, and you were saying you were drinking like one, they were drinking 1.8 liters an hour the other thing might be to consider running versus cycling because you know a lot of the stuff mm -hmm. you did and i and we did was cycling and it's a bit easier to to maybe drink yeah it, it is i mean from the this point eddie colby that point uh, 20 years ago in, mm. in a review that the, you have to to think about the trade-off physiologically drinking a lot imagine your physiology but in outside conditions, the trade-off, you slow down, um, the environmental conditions might be slightly different. So, so his recommendation, and I support that, it is in practical conditions, you don't have to drink uh, to rehydrate fully, but just partially hydrate, that could be uh, the, the, the recommendation. And it's harder, harder, obviously, when you're running to drink than cycling. Yeah, definitely. It, it mm. is with cycling, it's very easy with running. I, I have run two marathons myself, and it's extremely difficult. <laughs> uh, no matter how, uh, mm. you, you know, the runner is not the scientist <laughs> there in, in the field. No matter how clear in your mind it is about the benefit, it's really difficult. And it's interesting that the Technology to provide fluids have not changed. We still have the cup, the plastic cup, so mm. or the bottles are very difficult to to use, and uh, particularly during running, we should actually find some ways to to deliver the fluids. I guess we should just point out as well that people have to, you know, don't turn up and do a marathon and decide to drink 
how much we were talking about you need to do it in training and as you said maybe you won't yeah. be able to get in as much as the science is suggesting but um definitely practicing you see eddie uh, elliot kipchoge you know he drinks every he seems to drink every 5k he gets a little bit in there but um i'm sure he's not drinking equal to his fluid losses he would not not be doing that no no, no, no but probably that's that that's what we were saying the effects are very clear when you don't drink versus you, you drink a lot but in the field uh and when they run normally well it's like in the olympic marathon and like in tokyo he he, he won't and he still run very fast uh mm -hmm. and that those uh, conditions is very difficult to drink full for fluid replacement but one could guess that it, you also lose time if you try to drink so much and as you mentioned before during running there's gastrointestinal problems as well that can yeah that that, that that can be have a negative impact on your performance rather than the beneficial one you, now one of, you, one of the things you mentioned we talked about dehydration a lot and you touched on hypohydration do you want to just explain what what that is and you know you can maybe tie into that like if someone was doing a race tomorrow or something what would you suggest they do to reduce the chance of starting hypohydrated? Yeah, well, th those recommendations are up there. And I think uh, generally people have done a good job in, in, in indicating that one has to start euhydrated to so have the normal body weight, uh, normal body weight at the start of the race. So one has to eat well be carbohydrate loaded before with fluid so so you have to your normal body weight to start with and you ensure that by, by drinking a little bit more than, than, than normal but not too much because otherwise uh, you, it's counterproductive you have to urinate during the race <laughs> oh my gosh yeah I, I think i mentioned this in another podcast but i had a friend that i went through um, undergrad with in uh, exercise science and he did an iron man race and he said he had to urinate eight times during the bike. Mm. And he mm -hmm. said, what do you think happened there? And I said, you drank too much. <laughs> you know, it's not rocket mm -hmm. science. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's the other thing. You, obviously, people can't just be looking at it and going, okay, I, I need to drink 250 mils every 15 minutes. And then without thinking, how much am I actually going to be sweating? Mm -hmm. How fast am I going to be going? Like if you're going really slow. So, you know, I talked about the city to surf. Mm -hmm. If you walk it and you take three hours and you're drinking 50, 250 mils every 15 minutes and you're just walking, you're not producing much heat because I guess we haven't really talked mm -hmm. about that. You're producing your own heat plus the, the heat that's coming in. Then you're obviously going to, you don't need to drink that much. But if you're, you know, if you're going really fast, then you've got to drink more. And if, and if you drink so much, that you have to urinate eight times during a, you know, 180 K bike ride, you're drinking too much. I just remember it is uh, for, uh, the first project I was involved in with, in Edicol's laboratory, we have to test the, the fact of just drinking water versus the carbohydrate. And drinking water uh, in, in those conditions, you tended to, to urinate more. Why, when you drank carbohydrate during exercise with carbohydrate and electrolyte, you didn't drink as much and actually didn't have to stop. So, so, so that was... Uh, well, that actually brings Please, us back something to... that, that, that's important to consider the type of, of drinks to, because it impacts urine production during exercise. So that brings us back to Alan McCubbin's 
uh, you know, he was saying what's the effect of osmolality. So I guess you're saying there that when you drink water, you're kind of diluting your your um, number of particles per liter mm -hmm. of blood. So you're reducing your osmolality. But if you're drinking, you know, with carbohydrate and electrolytes, you're not going to reduce the osmolality. So you won't have as much of a stimulus to produce urine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Able to maintain uh, perfect plasma volume better. All right. And that also fits with another Twitter question. So Adam St. Pierre, he said, does sweat sodium concentrate? So, you know, it relates to, you know, we're talking about electrolytes, so sodium chloride, sodium, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Does sweat sodium concentration change over the course of a long duration exercise session to match the amount of sodium ingested? What do you think of that? Okay. I, I, I can answer the first part of... Uh... Of the question, there's a number of studies uh, analyzing plasma electrolytes. Uh, they take samples during two hours of exercise with and without dehydration. And with dehydration, there's the sweating rate decreases, but also the concentration of sodium and chloride, other electrolyte increases in comparison uh, to, to, to the normal hydration state. Uh, so, so, so there's there's clear differences in the composition of uh, of electrolytes in the sweat. With a, uh, it kind of goes, and in that that's so, so that's greater, and that matches also what happens in in the intravascular space where or in the blood in the plasma. There's greater mm -hmm. sodium. There's greater uh, chloride. So there's a match of that uh, in there. So, so the, you try to eliminate uh, some of that. Okay, sorry, uh, can I just clarify? Okay. So you're saying, because people don't necessarily realize this. So when you're exercising um, and you're sweating and you're not drinking, you're actually, the sweat is less salty than the blood. So as you're sweating, your blood actually gets more and more salty, correct? And, and yes, if yes. you're not drinking yeah. fluid, yes. So mm. your sodium actually goes up. Um, and then, you know, and then people start saying, okay, I'm going to drink, uh, drinks with, with sodium in them, etc. Now, are you just to, to clarify, are you saying that as your sweat, as your blood sodium goes up during prolonged exercise? Yeah. Are you saying that the sweat sodium goes up as well? Yes. Yes, I exactly. I didn't know that. That's cool. I didn't yeah. know. That. I didn't yeah. know that. So there's the sweat, the sweat become more concentrated. Yes. Sodium losses. Okay. Cool. All right. That's interesting. Uh, what are we, how are we going here? Is there anything? Um, now, you also said before we came on, you wanted to talk about, let me see if there's another Twitter question and then you can answer this one while we're at it. Um, you were saying it's, it's you know, good to think about the unknowns. You know, what stuff do we still not know in this area? What do you think is, you know, important to look at? Uh, it's not yeah, the, I think we have uh, discussed some uh some of those in regards for, for example the role of of, of brain signaling in, in fatigue this is a still ah, is yeah. an area that we need to to investigate and particularly the interaction you have signals from the periphery coming to the brain and how what the brain does that that, that aspect is it, there's very little information because they were limited by how what we can measure but, but but in the area that I work the most in the cardiovascular system, I think there is a lot of uh, 
to, to learn in that area in regards to the role and the periphery, the control of the circulation, what, what the role of, of the heart. Uh, there are some ideas that, that, that some people that think that the heart plays a major role in controlling pressure rather than in controlling flow. So, so this is something that they, it, it needs to, to, to be tested and investigated. The other thing is knowing about limitations. We, we apply Ohm's law that says a pressure uh, pressure gradient is equal to flow times resistance. And um, we calculate resistance and then the changes on resistance, we use it to indicate what happened in, in, in the macro circulation. And I think uh, it is, <laughs> this is like, like a box there. We, 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 it's just calculating. We need to have more direct measurements of what happened in the macro circulation also during exercise to, to, to understand the control of the, regu the regulation of the cardiovascular system that we were mentioning it, with the view that actually signal from the muscle itself might be more important than we have been uh, thinking, uh, at least from the integrated exercise physiology viewpoint. Other, in other fields, they have thought about this. Uh, the other thing is about the FIC uh, principle as well. We, we use it and I use it. And, um, and you see the three component uh, equation. Uh, you have oxygen consumption, you have flow, time, activity, no difference. Um, it holds, it holds true based on mass conservation laws and thermodynamics. And it, it is good, but there's limits to how much information, how much uh, insight we can gain in regards to mechanisms by using just the the, the, the fixed principle. So there, there, what I'm saying is that uh -huh. there's room for the new new generation to to come up with new models that obviously as you, we have been discussing about multiple signal models that integrate more of those signaling and particularly we are we are very uh influenced by the cardiocentric view of the heart when we see the principle we think about cardio output but actually we, we should talk about flow <laughs> just flow and the circulation because that, in that way, uh, we can think about the contribution of the periphery, not only the ah, heart. Okay. So, the, so the figure equation, VO2 max or VO2 equals blood flow times arterial venous oxygen difference. So we often think about VO2 max, for example. So VO2 max is maximum cardiac output times mm -hmm. maximum arterial oxygen difference. You're saying, let's just not think about the, the heart. We've got to know what's happening in each muscle bed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, Is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. In, in the different mm -hmm. territories, we have look at as the brain. We have a, even there's this concept where we apply Ohm's law to to determine what happened to vascular tone in the so-called non-active muscles. As you can exercise in a bicycle, mm -hmm. you have the hand and handlebar, and there's not much of a change in flow in the arms. Yep. But then when you calculate vascular conductance, because pressure is changing, mm. then you say that there's vasoconstriction. Yes, but this is, they indicate vasoconstriction, but flow is, is maintained. So they're, 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 they're yes, a, so saying that the flow you're is saying that, that Using that marker just to indicate what will happen in the microcirculation might have some limitation because sometimes we're talking about something that we're not measuring. And okay. we need to also measure 
uh, conductance directly. Uh, and also it, it is, there's many uh, in the phenomenon, for example, the cardiovascular uh, strain that happens during prolonged exercise with dehydration, we have used the FIC equation, we have gone directly to measure cardiac output with, mm -hmm. with the heart measurements. So that's, it is an a determination of cardiac output that is independent of other variables. So it's good to use different models to, that are not dependent on the calculation to demonstrate that that phenomenon is actually... Uh, yes. Uh, hey, has, any, has anyone yeah. done, has anyone done, because we've been doing with, so I collaborate with Eric Richter, I've had some um, some sabbaticals there, and we do, we use contrast enhanced ultrasound to look at muscle blood flow, so mm -hmm. through the capillaries, the microvascular, has anyone done that with, you know, tried to do that with exercise in the heat and things like that, or? Uh, no, not during exercise in the heat, but they have been done with other interventions. Uh, yeah. Like yeah, that's, it, that's you can't mention, but it, it is that's that's something that have to 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 be done. There's challenges when when the Copenhagen with Ben Satim and, and his colleague came up with the near tensor. It's, it's a beautiful model mm -hmm. because you calculate, you have your power, you get your average power, you and then you have your metabolism. You can relay, and you you have kind of you can have an assumption of the muscle mass engaged. And so they have, have a, uh, an important impact, the same thing with the model of, of the, on the forearm. The forearm is a little more complicated because there is not, a, there's many veins that drains many different tissues. So it's more difficult to find the vein that drains just no, that the muscle right. that you're studying, but while the leg, it is. But when we go in the future, there's a lot of that is unknown, it's coupling, uh, work to metabolism and doesn't have to de de be done real time construction by construction and that uh, that aspect it, it needs a methodological development and new ideas and new model but definitely this is well, i think it's where the field so so move. people should sign up to um to do some some phds and things with you yeah plenty of room for well, it, it is, it's just unfortunate. It's, you, I think you, you told me about challenges uh, in, in careers. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to ask a question. It is um, unfortunate you know, at the moment it is I don't have the, the funding to do that study. Oh. So. That's a common... That's I, a common it's easier study. to have the ideas that uh, they have the funding to... Yeah, to but that's it. a common... I don't want people to think, oh, I won't contact Jose because he hasn't got funding. I think a lot of people, myself, before I left academia pretty much struggling to get funding it's hard so mm -hmm. still contact you okay so to, to, uh, just another one from twitter mark preben uh, lindbeck sounds a bit danish himself does heat exposure peri post exercise promote extra mitochondrial adaptations and if so do these findings translate into performance outcomes do you have any thoughts on that yeah, that, that links to, to the question that you posed before in regards to the application of our fundings to elite athletes. Uh, my, my, my feeling, and, and this is based also in editorial that came in journal uh, physiology, Kasten uh, Lundby, um, last Nivel, that kind of challenged uh, some of the results in this area 
of heat stress that they are basically saying that if you use elite cyclists, you might find that the effects are much smaller or sometimes uh, are not present. So elite cyclists, they already have a high density of mitochondria, high capillary density, and they, they train, and even in thermonuclear environment, they have core temperatures when they are training, they are, they are high, above 39, even in thermonuclear environment. So, so, so adding a stimulus there to increase mitochondria density and function, I'm not entirely sure. There might be some marginal gains, but in research, because of, of the problem that we always have with methodologic uh, variability uh, and also biological variability, they are very difficult to, to be able to quantify them. So I guess if you did a study where you went at the same absolute workload with and without, uh, you know, in cool versus heat or, or you know, uh, thermoneutral versus heat, you could see that, yeah? Yeah. Well, I, I know, for me, in my mind, it's very clear for for elite athletes, mm -hmm. if you are training in a thermonuclear environment, you're going to compete like it was in, in Tokyo, the environmental conditions of 32, high humidity. It, it, it is important to, to acclimatize because even the effects are just a second or so, that, that means a lot when you are running mm -hmm. A race that it is in like middle distance, uh, three three twenty eight in the fifteen hundred or twenty nine. That's that mm -hmm. means quite a lot. So, but uh, I, so so in the practical terms, yes, we have to 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 do this heat acclimatization for experiment for us to be able to quantify that effect. It, it becomes uh, more difficult in in highly trained people, because they, they generally, for any given level of stress, elite athletes, and you can say, Elio Kichogi, and you have uh, Andy Jones here, and he, mm -hmm. he make uh, uh, the comment that he has an amazing ability to withstand this high intensity for yeah. those two hours, uh, and that, so, yeah, that's an indication that that is, he's uh, he and others are able to to run uh, at, at that pace. So, so this is an important point to consider that in the elite, uh, the effects that we characterize uh, in the sub-elite uh, populations might be smaller. I, I, in regards to the point of dehydration, I always remember Lance Armstrong being dehydrated and doing a time trial, and he did very poorly. So I don't dis say now here that dehydration doesn't affect even to the best ones. It also, of course, it will have an effect compared to himself being hydrated. He normally did quite well the time trial. He hydrated himself and so forth. But that day, he did well, and <laughs> he didn't take care of his hydration level. He didn't perform as well. So he would have come in hyper hyperhydrated, I guess you're saying, yeah. Or he didn't yeah, drink during it. He got dehydrated. No, during, during and the, he had the the previous stage. It was really really long and hard, and then he had the time trial. So during the recovery period, he was not able to 
mm -hmm. uh, restore body fluids. That at least that's the comment that was made. What this is absolutely clear is that he did worse that day. Yes, <laughs> compared so to the normal performance. So and just they were saying that he was dehydrated. Yes, so to clarify, because I just I know this hyperhydration, dehydration. So he's saying because he didn't restore his fluids, he started hyper hyper yes, hyperhydrated yes, with a deficit with the yes, deficit in yes. body fluid compared to his normal. And that that is that's something that uh, other groups and ourselves have shown that it's very reproducible when you start hypohydrated, you see this that uh that that effects that the effect on physiological function there's alterations in cardio heart rate and temperature yeah actually and that's very consistent just thinking about that so if you have a four three percent four percent reduction in your body water uh, body weight if it's hypohydrated so if you're starting like that versus getting it during it is there i'd imagine starting hypohydrated is probably worse because you've you've got that the whole way when dehydrated you're just getting it progressively yeah is that is that no yeah 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 that that links nicely that there's another uh study that uh montaigne scott montaigne did for mm -hmm. his phd where he was drinking at different time point um drinking always at any time point have an effect but the later he drank is the greater the <laughs> dehydration level so it's they say if you start hypohydrated then you immediately you, your responses are not the same you start you immediately uh go to a higher core temperature higher heart rate stroke volume will be reduced if you are measuring catecholamines or other responses ventilation is also elevated compared to to mm -hmm. the control condition so so yes uh hypohydration have also as an so how about we start to finish up? This has been great. And we, if we just think about maybe, I don't know, two or three, three or four sort of takeaway messages from this chat, if you wanted to have, you know, when you give a lecture, you sort of, you think, oh, I hope they remember at least those three, those three bits. What's what's the real takeaway that you want to get across? Yeah, I I, I think it, it is important uh, that we think about complexity when trying to uh, address the question of, of fatigue, what causes fatigue or what causes alterations in cardiovascular function, alterations in respiratory function, metabolism. It, there's not a single factor. Uh, one have a paradigm, it's important to have a paradigm to, to, to be able to conceptualize that phenomenon and come up with ideas and new hypotheses for somebody to for people to 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 then test directly, but 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 my main recommendation is to think about that level mm -hmm. of complexity uh, rather than trying to say it's, it's just that factor. In in regards to recommendations that we touch upon, just that people have to consider the event duration in, in, when when thinking about hydration needs during exercise. Yes, we talk quite a lot about prolonged exercise, two hours and two and a half hours or three hours. There's many events now that there are those durations, but that involves a very small percentage of the population. The majority of the people are active for half an hour, 40 minutes. And, and those conditions, as you pointed out before, is you are better off if you start well hydrated. You, you do your normal 30 minutes exercise or 40 minutes, and then when you get home, you drink a glass of water and you you rehydrate yourself. There's mm -hmm. not 
an important need to do during exercise. Maybe if you want, particularly in the summer month when it's, it is hot, then you can drink during in a shorter event because if you feel better, there's no mm -hmm. harm uh, on it, but it's not absolutely necessary for short events. Um, and the last point in regards, because that's the area that I'm, I think uh, I'm passionate, most passionate about uh, at the moment is in thinking uh, to, to resolve and to come up with new paradigms of how the cardiovascular system works. I think we have quite a lot of work to do in regards to understand the role of the periphery in, in how the blood moves around the circulation uh, and, and try to th think about alternative to this cardiocentric dominated uh, 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 models that we use. We always think about the heart determining the, the periphery. Uh, in, the, in that regard, it's, it's, it's like some years ago when I came here to, to Brunel University and you start thinking, oh, well, let's get uh, into, let's get some funding and you you think about pharmacological interventions that can increase flow because that is of application for many different things. Uh, and more recently, we have done work, at least recently in the last 15 years, is that with heating, you just heat the peripheral uh, tissue and you increase flow uh, there. So, so a concept, some time of, of how the body uh, is regulated, it helps you to come up with interventions that might be of help for, for recovery, for people that cannot exercise. So, so, so that's, uh, uh, I think, another take-home message is we, we are doing physiology and develop understanding because it can lead to new applications and new ways of, of solving or treating a, a a very difficult problem that we had before um, with, with, with new approaches. Great. Well, actually, I wanted to give you a chance to say some of, the, some of these bits and pieces you were excited about. So I know you've got, so when you're talking about if you just, if you heat an area, you increase blood flow. Is that related to, because I saw you've got a temperature dependent ATP release from human blood and endothelial cells. So is this, part of what you're talking about there because i you know like i said i want you to get a chance to talk about some of your recent stuff yeah yeah uh, well at least the, we don't have the conclusive evidence that that atp is the major contributor to this hyper hyperthermia induced hyperemia and it's it's localized it's, it's local if you just hit uh, one part of of the leg you just increase flow in that part of, of, mm. of the leg not mm. in the other um it is we have identified that if you heat red blood cells, then you, mm -hmm. they release more ATP, but plasma or serum does not release ATP. Uh, endothelial cells do not release ATP when we heat them up. So when we infuse ATP, then you get this vasodilation if you have been involved in experiments at that time. That is very... Uh, reproducible uh, uh, funding uh, and when you infuse it when the arm it is is heated then you have a higher hyperemia so there's some evidence that indicates that might participate that that can be the mechanism by temperature uh, itself induces this increase in flow 
it is a so it's a, it's an area that 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 we want to and we are investigating. And that could have, I guess, clinical implications. Maybe if someone's got, I don't know, peripheral arterial disease or something. Yes, like yes, yeah. yeah okay. It is. We just, we want to do experiments during walking in elderly people. You have had the uh, uh, people here talking about heat stress and heat, heat therapy. And this mm -hmm. is an, an area yeah. that uh, we also want to uh, be in, uh, contribute to. We have had the model of NIST tensor and superimposed uh, heating in that condition, as you, you have been done. Um, nice. did, and we did also before, and uh -huh. others have done before. So, so, so that's an area that. Uh, all right. Of interest for them. Well, it's been fun to chat about this stuff. Some of the stuff is like bringing up all these memories from years ago, this, some of the stuff I did, but you've obviously progressed that a lot. So, thank you very much for coming on board, and uh, I'll see you around. Okay, thank you very much, Glenn, for having me. It's, it's yes, a, it was fun. a pleasure. Thank okay. you. See you, mate. Cheers. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.